This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, My name is Kyle Culbertson. If you don't know me, I'm the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Um, And it is, as Zach said already, great to just be back in person um, and to not be doing this to a camera, uh, but in an empty room. Uh, It's great to be able to be together after what has been a rough week and what continues to be rough for so many, to be able to have a bit of a morning of just worshiping the Lord together, having kind of a corporate exhale, have time in the air conditioning, time to worship God, time to open His Word. Uh, It's just a blessing to be here in so many different ways. It's a blessing to open God's Word and continue in the study of Samuel. Uh, As we hit a monumental occasion in our study this morning, we are finally in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We finished 1 Samuel last week. Uh, We talked about how it ends with the death of King Saul. Saul is now gone. Israel needs a new king. And we have been told time and time again that David is that guy. David is the Lord's anointed. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And so we expect to just march into chapter 1 and be like, David's here. Let's go. We expect to see what we see in England right now where Queen Elizabeth has died, King Charles steps right in, and they keep on moving forward. And we'd really believe that if we actually were reading Chronicles instead of Samuel. You see, the, cha- the chronicler, chronicler actually uses only four verses to summarize this transition of power. He talks about speaking of Saul, and he says he was one that did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron, and they walk through this speech, and they anoint him as king over all of Israel. And so we expect this similar story, this similar transition of power. And yet Samuel doesn't get to that speech and that that anointing until chapter 5. The first four chapters are this intermittent period where only Judah recognizes David as king. And so we have to wait five chapters until he finally comes to get the promise that he was given. And these four chapters feel messy. They're seven and a half years long, and they're full of sin. They're full of murder. They're full of anger. They're full of war, of brother against brother. And yet we still believe that it's God's word. There's a reason that the author of Samuel gives us all this in-depth look as to what happened. He doesn't just gloss over it. Because it's good for us to look at, we believe God's word is good for us. We have to be willing to look through the mess. We have to be willing to look at the reality of sin and realize that it's the same in our own lives. And so this morning as we read a section that is not fun... We're going to realize that it's all describing who we are as sinful people. That there are a multitude and a myriad of ways that we sin against God. And we're going to be looking at three broad categories of that displayed by each of the characters in our story. We're going to see that we commit sins of commission. Those things that we do that transgress God's word. We're going to see that there are sins of disposition, the way that we actually view God in our lives. And we're going to see that there are sins of omission the lacking of doing what God has already commanded for us to do. And we're going to look at that through the story of Abner and Joab in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And so I invite you to stand as you are able out of reverence for God's word as we read 2 Samuel chapter 3 verses 1 through 30. 
It says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahanom of Jezreel, his second Shaliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third Absalom, the son of Mechah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, the sixth Ithrium of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David at Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman." God, do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. And Abner said to him, go and return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord, the king, and they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing about spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, and it was told to Joab that the Abner, of, Abner son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go. He has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you were doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by a sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, because he had put his brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. 
This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. It's a long one. So in this large passage, there's a lot going on. And we're going to be talking about sin, starting off with talking about those sins that we commit that transgress God's law. And I think the one sin becomes the most obvious, and so we're going to start there, and it's the sin of Joab. Obviously, he just murdered Abner in a time of peace. And we're told that he murders Abner because he wants vengeance for his brother's death. Abner's the one that killed Asahel at Gibeon. But the problem is that before we're any sympathy towards Joab, we have to realize that nothing about this murder is good. First of all, it happens at Hebron, a city that is set up to be a sanctuary city for Israel. It's a place where even a murderer is supposed to be able to come and have a fair trial before the elders. And yet Joab refuses to take him in front of them and enacts his own vengeance. And the reality of why he does this is probably because Joab knows just as well as everyone else that Abner is not guilty of anything. There is no blood guilt. It says in the text itself at the end that it's the death that happened at the battle at Gibeon. It's a death that happened in war between Abner and Joab. And so in war, if you are killed, there is no blood guilt upon that person's head according to Israelite law. But not only that, Abner actually did it. If you read the text in chapter 2 where it talks of this death, it's mostly in self-defense. You see, Asahel, Joab's brother, is fervently pursuing him. He's running after him, and he's quicker than Abner, so he's going to catch up. He wants to fight Abner. And Abner warns him multiple times, turn aside to the right or to the left. Take one of the other men. Take one of their spoils. I don't want to kill you. And yet Asahel keeps on coming, forcing Abner into a fight that Abner is much stronger and overpowers him and ultimately kills Asahel. And so there is death, but Abner is not guilty of anything. And so Joab refuses to allow justice to be served because he knows that there is no justice to be had. And so Joab, in his anger and vengeance, decides to do it himself. In a time of peace, when David is finally uniting the two tribes together, when he's finally bringing all of Israel together, Joab does his own dirty work. Joab decides, I'm not going to kill him in the day, but in the shadows. I'm going to murder him in the stomach the same way he murdered my brother. Joab doesn't care about God's people or God's word at this point. All Joab cares about is himself. And that's what happens when we commit acts of sin and acts of sins of commission. We're acting against God's law simply because we want what we want more than we want God's word. More than we want to listen to God, we want the own desires of our heart. And while none of us are probably in here this morning thinking, We are murderers. The reality is we all transgress laws all the time simply out of our own desires. Think about it this way. When's the last time you were driving and you were speeding? I grant that probably all of us have done this. The law is pretty clear. We know how fast we're going. The cars are built with a speedometer in front of our faces. We know we're probably not supposed to go 70 miles an hour down a highway in Puerto Rico, but we do it anyways. And then we come, and whenever you hear someone talk about getting pulled over, it's the best because they always seem incredulous as to why they would get pulled over. How dare he pull me over? I was only going five over. I was only doing ten over. I was late to work. I was, my kids forgot their lunch. I had to get somewhere quickly. But the reality is we know that traffic law doesn't make these exceptions. There's no place in traffic law that it says you can go just five over what we told you to go. 
There's no exceptions that say, well, if you, your kid forgot their lunch, it's fine. You do what you have to do. No, it says go 50 miles an hour or less. That's the law. And yet we transgress it simply because we want to. We do things simply out of our own desires instead of listening to traffic law, but we do it with God's law as well. We're willing to lie because we don't want to tell someone the truth. We cheat, be it on our taxes or our families or even in a board game, just because we want to win. We do all these things and we know they're wrong, but we still want to do them more than we want to listen to God. And that's what got Joab in trouble. That's where his sin lied and that's where our sin lies in our hearts. See, none of us are better than Joab. We're all sinners. And just like we're just like Joab, we're also just like Abner. See, Abner's sin is not necessarily one of commission, but it's one of disposition. You see, Abner's sin is not necessarily an act, but it's a sin that is described by his attitude and his heart. You see, he wants to put himself above God. Abner knows David is supposed to be king. Abner knows God's promises to David. He says them himself to the leaders of Israel. He said, this is the Lord's promise for David to be king and to be the deliverer of our people. And yet, Abner's the one that put Ishbosheth in charge. If you read chapter 2, it's spoken of as Abner did it all himself. Abner held the power as Saul's commander, and he elevated Saul's son. He'd been around for Jonathan to attest that David is the anointed one. He'd been around for Saul to even attest it in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. But why would Abner refuse God's commands? Well, it says simply in verse 6, it's because Abner's making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner's all about the power for himself. He's all about the wealth for himself, and he continues to grow and grow in that power until this moment. Because finally, Ishbosheth grows a bit of a spine. He accuses him of sleeping with Saul's concubine, which is an act that would be to make yourself king. And so Ishbosheth calls him out on this treasonous act. And notice Abner is incredulous. How could you accuse me of this? But he never denies it. See, Abner is busy making himself strong until he can't. And so now he's going to flee to something that might have a better outcome for Abner because that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about God's will first, but it's sitting right in his back pocket that he's willing to pull it out in the same conversation. This has always been the backup plan. I'll finally go with what God has said. To Abner, God's will is no better than a backup generator. And I think we've all become acquainted with the sights and the smells and the sounds of backup generators of the last few days and even this morning as we walk into church. And while they are great and powerful things, and I'm sure lots of us love them dearly in this moment, nobody two weeks ago was probably thinking, you know what, I want to power my house with a backup generator. That seems like the best idea. Like none of us are that foolish because we know there's a better option. Whether it's solar, whether it's the electrical grid, these things are more powerful, they're more efficient, they're the way it was supposed to be. And that's how it is with God. God is not supposed to be a backup generator. The very act of relegating God below Abner, Abner is transgressing God's law as well. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, God doesn't need a backup generator when he's in charge. Unlike our electrical grid, he doesn't fail. And yet Abner still thinks that Abner as God is a better option. And yet we do the same, don't we? How many of us this last week in the midst of hurricanes and fear have dusted off not just our generators but our prayer lives? 
How many of us have prayed as many times in the last week as we have in the last month? How many of us could say realistically a year ago at this date, we probably prayed as much as we did last weekend? And don't get me wrong, God wants to be a God that is with us in the storm. God wants to be a God that is our refuge and there for us in the time of need. But the reality is God also wants to be that very same God every other day of the year. And he deserves it because he's the only one that doesn't fail. He's the only one that doesn't need a backup. He's the only God that we can go to and he is always good. He is always right and he is always winning, even in the midst of so much sin. And so we're all just as guilty as Abner so often in our lives. And so this comes to the point where we're going to look at David. And so often in the book of 1 Samuel, it gets to this point, you feel really good. You're like, David is the good guy. This is great. David is the one that we should look to. Like Abner and Joab failed, but David as the Lord's anointed is awesome. And that would make this sermon a lot easier, to be honest. But the problem is the author of Samuel is not glossing over things. He's not hiding events He's willing to give us a realistic picture and show us that David is just as much a failure as everybody else. That David sins, and I'm not even going to talk about the sin of his harem that we talked about with all those funny names at the beginning, because the reality is that that is sinful too. That transgresses God's law for a king in Deuteronomy 28. But we're going to put a pin in that sin for right now because that one's going to bear a lot more fruit in the coming weeks. But I'm talking about David's sin of omission his failure to do what God has called him to do. You see, as king, David is the one that's supposed to be the the justice of God. David is the one that's supposed to step in and punish Joab when he commits murder. And it looks kind of like it when he curses him, but the reality is the punishment for this death, this punishment for this murder is to be executed. And David hasn't been shy about doing this punishment. He does it in chapter 1 with an Amalekite. He does it in chapter 4 coming up with the sons of Rimon. And yet David stops short with Joab. David fails to enact the justice that is deserved, the justice that it is his role as God's king. For whatever reason it is, be it because he's scared of Joab, whatever reason it is, because Joab's actually his nephew and he's too close or he's too afraid. Joab is a man of blood, and most likely it would have gotten ugly. And But for whatever reason it is, David fails to do what he is required to by God. David is shirking his own responsibility, and we feel good about it because he talks all this spiritual thing of the Lord will punish, the Lord will do these things, I'm going to call down curses. But the reality is this is nothing more than the superficial spirituality we talked about last week. Or a good old Midwestern phrase from where I'm from is this is putting lipstick on a pig. You see, there's this cloaking of a spiritual talk, but the reality is it's just David failing to do what he's supposed to. Now, if you want a better picture of what this might look like, for any kid in this room, the next time your parents ask you to go clean your room this week, I want you to respond to them and say, you know what, Mom, Dad, I'm going to pray about that, and if God wants me to go clean my room, then I'm going to go do it. But I'm going to wait on Him to let me know. The reality is God has already spoken through your parents. God has already told you what to do. You already know the commands are there, and this is just a way of you avoiding what you don't want to do. And David knows this. Actually, on David's deathbed, he's going to talk to his son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, and he's going to tell him, you know what, you need to go put Joab to death because he's a murderer, and he murdered Abner, and he deserves to die. 
But David's shirking his own responsibility. And we do the same. We all talked last week about superficial spirituality and how we want to cloak things in this, I'm waiting on God to tell me. I'm waiting on God to show me how I can love on my neighbor. I'm waiting on God to show me a poor or a widow or an orphan that I can love on. But the reality is they're there and we're called to go to them, and yet we still don't do it. We shirk our own responsibility and we sin by failing to do what God has already been so clear about in his word. And it again comes back to the fact that we are in sin because we want to be. We are sinful people. This passage is full of it. It's full of David. It's full of Abner. It's full of Joab. There's no one good in this section, which makes it hard to look at. And it's even harder when we realize that we are reflected in each and every one of their sins. We all do the same. We sin by commission, omission, and disposition constantly. And yet the beauty of it is that even in this, it's still God's word. God still moves throughout this story, and there's still one little glimmer of hope that sits inside even the darkest bits of this story. Because verse 10, there's one little phrase where uh, I believe it's Abner talking about the throne of David. Now, he's simply meaning that David is going to become king, but the reality is that this little phrase, the throne of David, goes throughout the Bible and means so much more in the context of God's plans. You see, this throne of David is what's spoken about in Isaiah 9, a passage that's speaking of one that is to come, to sit on the throne of David, one that will be our Prince of Peace, our wonderful Counselor, our Almighty God, the one whose government will be on his shoulders and his reign will have no end, the one who is a light in the darkness, a light breaking through in this passage in the midst of so much darkness and sin. Because the reality is we all need that little light. We all need something to break in because we're all just as dark in the own sins of our lives when we're willing to look at it. We all understand and can agree with what our New Testament passage this morning said when it says that we are all under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the beauty is when we keep reading, it says, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, even in our sins of commission, even in our sins of disposition, even in our sins of omission, Christ's blood is there to cover them all. It is good for us to read sections of scripture, not just like Chronicles. We can't just skip over and see the glossy moments and see how great God is without looking at these same passages in Samuel and realizing how much of a failure we are. Because it's good for us to reflect on. Because we realize our need for Christ that much more. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're realizing that we all identify with Abner, with Joab, and with David. But we all also identify because Christ identified himself with us as our Savior. And I'm going to close this morning with this little picture that comes actually out of our uh, small group books that we're going through. If you're not in a small group, you should be in one. Uh, come talk to me or Zach. We'd love to get you plugged in. But they talk about the gospel as something that we're growing in. It's justification and sanctification. And while at our time of conversion, we hear the gospel and it's a great moment, as we grow in sanctification, it's something that has to keep on getting 
bigger and growing in our knowledge of Christ. And the way they talk about how this happens is actually in two different lines of sight. And so we have to be looking at one that looks upward and it gets taller and taller as you go. It's talking about how great God is. We have to continue to look to his word and realize how great our God is. And each time we look at it, we're going to realize he's even more great than we thought he was. And so it's going to keep going up. But the reality is we also need a line of sight that goes down. We need a reality of sight that looks at our own sin like we are in this morning's passage. And realize that each time we look at it, we realize we're actually more sinful than we even thought possible before. Each day we go through our walk with the Lord, we reveal even more of our sin. And so while there's this line going up, there's also a line going down. And the gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger between the two. But the beauty of this picture is that the one thing that unites these two lines is the cross of Christ. And so as this gap gets bigger, the cross gets bigger as well. You see, we understand that Jesus' punishment paid for our sins, and it pays over all of them. So the more we see the depths of our sin, the more we see the depths of his love. The more we see how great God is, the more we realize how much he gave up to come down for us. And so the more we realize how much he loves us. And so it's good for us not just to look at passages like Chronicles, but it's good to look at passages like 2 Samuel 2 through 4 to realize how much we are in sin how much it's intertwined in our lives so that we would see how great Christ is. That as we continue to grow in our sanctification, we would realize more of who he is, what he's done, and how much he loves us. And that it would encourage us to flee not just from our sins, but to cling to his cross more and more each morning as we fall on our knees every single day with him as Lord of our lives. And that's what we're doing this morning because he is God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning that we can open your word together in this place. We thank you that in the midst of just chaos around us, God, that we can understand that you are better. But we can also understand that you are better and we can know that you are great and how you've loved us so much because we are sinful. Lord, allow us to realistically come with open eyes again and again to your word in such ways that we would realize the depths of our own depravity. That we would realize that we are sinful creatures that do not deserve anything that you have been willing to share with us so graciously and that you've covered over our multitudes of sins by your mercy alone. God, allow us to come time and time again to the picture of the cross, remembering what you've done and seeing it become bigger and bigger in our lives that it would be all that we run to, that you would be always remaining as our number one source of power and life. God, that even when we don't have electric, even when we don't have water, we can run to you who are living water and who are more powerful than anything we could ever imagine. God, allow it to be something that charges us to go after what your word has called us to, to love our neighbors, to serve those people around us in times of need. And God, that we would do it in a way that we would honor you above us. In your name we pray. Amen.